Now, I want to say that it has been a terrific pleasure for me to be here uh, during this month of July. Uh, I indicated at the beginning of my time with you that uh, uh, the sheer thrill of being able to preach a consecutive series again uh, is something that I have really treasured. I don't get a chance to do that so much now. Uh, for those maybe who don't know, I'm the assistant principal in the Irish Baptist College, and uh, I have been asked to just say something uh, about the college by way of an update to you this morning. Uh, And that is to say that we had laid before our churches uh, a prayer request in relation to the new course that we are launching in September. Uh, That is a a vocational course uh, credited by the University of Wales at Lampeter. And uh, we'd asked the Lord to send us 12 new students to commence that course, not the 12 apostles, Uh, but 12 people who really felt that they were called by God, set apart by him uh, to train on that course. And we're delighted to be able to report to you today that we have our 12 and uh, possibly another couple who are thinking about things at the moment, but we have those 12. And I'd like to say thank you to the church here in Windsor, uh, as I have been doing to other churches, uh, for your prayer support for the college. And please continue to pray, particularly as we come to September and the launch of this course. Uh, It's like anything new. There are normally teething troubles, and I anticipate one or two of those, I'm sure. Uh, But we really have appreciated your prayers and ask you to continue to stand with us uh, in the work of training in our Association of Churches. It's been very good to have fellowship with Tony Thompson again. Uh, We go back a long way, actually, to those days in Jordanstown. And uh, it's been great to hear what the Lord has been doing in his life. And uh, may the Lord continue to bless you there in your work in the World Bank, Bank, Tony. Now, we've been thinking together about some of the ethics of the early chapters of Genesis. And I'd like you to turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 4. And uh, we're going to be thinking about... Uh, Verses 1 to 16, well, not in exhaustive detail, but certainly uh, about one or two themes in those verses. And our main theme this morning is worship and life, worship and life. So we need to read God's word and reading from Genesis 4 from verse 1. Adam lay with his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. 
Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Amen. Now, we've already been thinking on these Sunday mornings in July about one or two main themes from the early chapters of Genesis. We have discovered together that man is made in the image of God. In other words, it is a very special thing to be a human being. We learned that man has been given a great privilege, the privilege of work to perform and rest to enjoy. And then last Sunday morning, we saw how that picture of beauty and harmony and order was radically spoiled by the entrance of sin into the world. Now today, I want you to look with me at the story of Cain and Abel and to see in this account in Genesis how there is a great deal to learn here about the subject of worship and about the sacredness of life. In other words, what we think about God and about man must have a bearing on the way we worship God and the way we treat others. Uh, And so that's why I've entitled this series The Ethics of the Early Chapters of Genesis. Now in this chapter there are a, a number of first things and I want you just to make note of them as we begin this morning. There is firstly the first animal husbandry. Prior to this point, man, it appears, was a tiller of the ground given a command by God, uh, given in the first place to Adam to tend the garden, to look after uh, the fruit that grew there. And then as part of the curse we saw last time in chapter 3, he would work this ground in labor and in toil. But we have in this section the first indicator of animal husbandry where Abel uh, is someone who looks after flocks. And then there is the first example of sacrifice and offering. It's interesting that up until this point, there is no record of such a thing having taken taken place. But now you see, everything has changed. Now mankind needs a point of contact with God. And then tragically, there is the first homicide. Uh, I say homicide because Cain plotted to murder his brother. In other words, this was not a spur-of-the-moment flare-up of anger. Bad enough if it had been, but this was actually the consequence of deep-seated envy and hatred. Sin had now become a part of human nature. So, a number of first things simply to make note of as we begin. And uh, as I've said, we learned some crucial lessons here for life and worship from these things this morning. Now, the first of these that I want us to consider in a bit more detail, is the fact that worship is serious. Now, I put these up together. We're going to compare Cain and Abel. You can see this, hopefully, on both sides of the screen. And one of the main points that the writer of Genesis is determined that his first readers and you and I understand today is that worship is serious. Worship is something that is to be rendered in the way God says and with the best that we have. Now, I I realize, and I I want to stress immediately, that worship is more 
than simply what we do in a special building on Sunday. It is all of life. Uh, I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. But if I can initially refer to the corporate gathering of the Christian community. In other words, what is taking place here in this special building this morning. Here, worship is serious. It is not just something that is done on a whim and in any old fashion. And so, as you and I have come to this place, to church today, I trust that we have come together prepared to worship God. If we've come for any other reason, then sadly it is not acceptable to him. Uh, we sometimes sing a song in Coleraine, I'm sure you sing it here as well in Windsor, uh, based on the words of a psalm, May our worship be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. I, I love beginning a service with that song, because it sets the context right away. It's right and proper to use those words, because that's what really counts here. Not so much whether I really enjoy what happens, not so much whether I get a good feeling uh, about having been here for an hour and 15 minutes or so, so that when I leave here I feel up, up here rather than down there. Because if we constantly think like that, then we reduce worship to something that is done purely and simply for our benefit. I want to say nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, a word of qualification. I, I do not mean to indicate that worship is something that ought to be endured rather than enjoyed. And so, uh, as you go away from here today, I hope you will go away saying, well, I, I enjoyed being at church this morning. If you endured it, then there's something wrong, either with you or, or with me or with us, and perhaps the elders of the church will need to examine that if, if God's people here in Windsor are simply enduring the services. We're not meant to endure them, we're meant to enjoy them. I, I'm reminded of what a prominent businessman said on one occasion. He said, I might have gone into the ministry if certain clergymen known to me had behaved less like funeral directors. And uh, maybe there's something in that. Perhaps those of us who are ministers of God's word need to sit up and listen to a story like that. So I do hope that you will enjoy our worship today. But our primary motivation, let me say it again, our primary motivation must be that we will worship God in spirit and in truth. Remember how Jesus used that phrase to, to the woman. He said, those who worship the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. So worship is a serious business. Now here then is the first example of sacrifice or offering. Cain brought, we can see here on the, uh, my left side, is it? yes, it's your left as well, some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But on the other side of the screen, we discover Abel brought, quote, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord, we read, looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but not so with Cain. Now, the question immediately arises, what's the big problem? After all, Cain was a fruit grower. He was an arable farmer. He brought what was natural for him to bring. Abel, on the other hand, we discovered, is somebody who looks after sheep. He brings a lamb or part of a lamb from the flock. And the question is obvious. Why is God being so particular? Is it that he simply doesn't like Cain? Is there something personal in his disapproval of this individual? 
Well, the names of the two men may provide a clue. Cain's name means something akin to get, G-E-T, while Abel's name means nothingness or frailty. Uh, And so perhaps, and I I don't want to put too much store by this, but you will know that uh, names in the Hebrew language and in Scripture generally indicated something about the character of the person who bore the name. And it may be that there is an indicator here that Cain is characterized by self-sufficiency and his brother, alternatively, by humble dependence. Now, you may know that many commentators, particularly in the past, have taken the view that the reason why Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was not was because it was a blood offering. And uh, they will refer you to the passage in uh, the New Testament that says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so the answer is, God was pleased with Abel because he brought a blood sacrifice, and not with Cain because he simply brought some fruit. Now, there is a problem with that view, and the problem is this, that the word used for offering here, it's applied to both offerings, uh, is the Hebrew word minha, uh, which is ordinarily used of a grain offering. And you can read about that in Leviticus chapter 2, where the minha, the grain offering, is a gift offered to God in the context of celebration. Uh, And so it seems to me that the problem with Cain's offering is not that there is the absence of blood in it. And in any case, there is no mention of either of these offerings in Genesis 4 as being sin offerings. So what is the answer? Well, I want to suggest two related reasons why God accepted Abel and rejected Cain. Here is the first. Abel's worship, it seems to me, was costly. You will notice that it says, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil, whereas Abel brought fat portions of the firstborn. In other words, Abel brought the best that he could offer, while it appears Cain did not. Cain simply brought some of the produce that he was uh, in control of. Here is Abel, and he brings the very best that he can. Now, it's not explicit in the text, but there is perhaps a hint in the way uh, that the passage is phrased. So Abel's worship was costly. Secondly, if I can put it this way, his worship was real. Now, we're helped in this connection by the New Testament commentary uh, on this passage, which is found in three places. First of all, Matthew chapter 25, verse 35, where Jesus uses these words. He speaks about the blood of righteous Abel. Then 1 John 3 verse 12, for the writer warns his readers not to be like Cain who murdered his brother because his own actions were evil and his brother's actions were righteous. And then Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 where we read these words, by faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. Now, that last passage, it seems to me, is very significant. The writer there speaks of Abel's offering as a better offering than Cain's. The word that is translated better means greater or more important. So what is it that makes Abel's offering more important than Cain's? The answer implied in Hebrews is that it comes from a heart 
counted righteous by faith. If in another place Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, we can say precisely the same about Abel. And this takes us, I believe, right to the heart of worship. What is worship? It is not just singing words that we see projected on a screen. It is not just praying together. It is not just reading. It is not just preaching. It is about something that happens within. It is the expression of a devoted and obedient heart. Abel's worship was real. And the summary statement in the text is that Cain did not do what was right, verse 7. Now, I don't know how God made clear to the two brothers his rejection of one and his acceptance of another, but somehow they learned of God's reaction. And the result was that Cain was very angry and his face was downcast, and the Lord chastised him. And the reason he chastised him was that he had not done what was right. In other words, his disobedience and anger were the direct consequence of sin. And the Lord depicts sin in a very interesting way here. And something that perhaps you and I can identify with this morning. He says it is like a wild animal crouching at the door. But you must master it. And uh, sin is depicted in a variety of ways in scripture. uh, And one of the ways it's depicted Uh, very helpfully for us here, is like a wild animal. Now I want to say that there is here a lasting principle for worship through the ages. And the principle is this. It comes in the form of a question. Will we be like Cain and bring to God that which costs us nothing? Or will we be like Abel, bringing the best we can and bringing our offering to God with a sincere heart of love? Now that applies not just when the offering plate is passed around or when the reading has taken place and the songs being sung and the word of God being preached. Our response is to be a wholehearted one to the whole of what is taking place in a service of worship. Bringing all that we are in commitment and dedication to all that God is. And then tomorrow. Because if worship is more than Sunday and it is, if it is a lifelong expression of our devotion and obedience to the God who made us and the God who saved us, then it's something that we need to bring to him with all that we are. And that is ramifications for tomorrow morning, whatever time you start, in your place of work. It doesn't mean, as I indicated a couple of weeks ago, that we use our place of work as a platform for evangelism in an overt way, but very often much more by the way we do our work. We bear witness to the God who created us in his image and the God who has gloriously saved us. Warren Wearsby has an excellent little book on worship in which he draws a distinction between metamorphosis and masquerade. What was the phrase, Tony? Terminology clarification. Well, let me do that. What is metamorphosis? The former, uh, this metamorphosis is what happens when a caterpillar changes into a butterfly. In other words, it's a radical change that takes place within the creature. A change from within. That's metamorphosis. What's masquerade? Well, masquerade, says Wearsby, is simply a change in the outside. Nothing has really happened within. So what is it that God seeks in worship? Metamorphosis, 
and not masquerade. As we pour out our hearts to God this morning and tomorrow and the next day and the next in praise and adoration and joyful obedience, he will transform us into the likeness of Christ by his power within. So the first lesson that you and I need to take on board today is this. Worship is serious. And if we are serious about it, then God will indeed change us into his likeness and image. The second thing that I I want to stress from Genesis chapter 4 this morning is the principle that life is sacred. In our passage, we very quickly see that Cain did not listen to God's admonition and he devised a murderous plan in his heart. Let's go out to the field, he said to his brother Abel. Abel innocently does so. And then Cain attacks his brother and kills him. Here is the first murder, a premeditated act that is the first of millions in the history of the world to follow. And the Lord asks Cain, where is your brother Abel? And he replies, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And as we look at that word, we're meant to pick up on it because it's been used before in the book of Genesis. Keeper is a word that we find in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Remember how it's used in the original job description that God gave to Adam. He is to be a keeper of the garden. And then it's given in chapter 3 verse 24 to the cherubim who are to keep or guard the way to the tree of life. Now what does that word mean? It's a word that concerns responsibility. And here is Cain denying any responsibility, even though it is obvious he is directly responsible for Abel's death. Now what does that tell us? It tells us very simply that accountability, responsibility, had begun to disintegrate when Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent, and now that abdication of responsibility is seen in the life of their son. And then the Lord uttered words that he had used before to Cain's parents in the garden. What have you done? What have you done? And then significant words to follow. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What a significant statement that is. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Indicating to us today and for for all of time that nothing like this is ever done in secret. The blood of the innocent cries out to the Lord and has been doing so ever since the fall. Uh, You and I are a little bit anaesthetized to atrocity, partly because of our experience here in Northern Ireland. And uh, as the media constantly puts before our eyes uh, tragedy and atrocity occurring around the world, the more we see of it, the more dull we, we are desensitized to it. Have you noticed this? Uh, And I think partly because of the world of entertainment as well, because shooting, killing, murder is is so much a part of the world of entertainment today. And we are thereby desensitized. Uh, And we need to come back to Genesis and remind ourselves that the blood of the innocent cries out to the Lord. Here, right at the beginning of Genesis, the principle of the sanctity of human life is set in place. Something that would later be enshrined in the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. In other words, nobody takes life with impunity. God will hold to account those who set out to take the life of another person. 
Now, one area that I, I've been thinking a little bit about, and I, I know that this is a, a vexed question for some people, is this one. How does the taking of life in a time of war fit into this principle in Genesis that life is sacred? Uh, I'm very aware that many people of good conscience have decided that for them the root of pacifism is the only possible option that they can accept. And uh, I will very much defend their right to be pacifist. Uh, It is not my personal judgment on the matter. And uh, for what it's worth this morning, I I simply want to state one or two principles which have guided my thinking. Please feel free to agree or disagree with these, but to do so agreeably. Uh, First of all, there is nothing in either the Old Testament or the New Testament that indicates it is inconsistent to be at the same time a soldier and a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, In the Old Testament, it is clear that at times in the history of Israel, God commanded the use of armed force uh, to fulfill his purposes, and yet without the glorification of war or the warrior. Then when you come to the New Testament, you find that there are soldiers converted. They come to faith in Jesus Christ, and John the Baptist, interestingly, does not speak against their profession, but assumes that they will remain soldiers, and simply states that they are to do their duty and be content with their wages. Well, in other words, soldiers are no different to anybody else. They grumble about those things. Furthermore, in Romans, the Apostle Paul recognizes the right of the state to bear the sword, the sword there being a symbol of punitive authority. The majority of Christians have understood that war is justifiable when all other means uh, to avoid it have failed. Uh, And so what I'm talking about here is the principle of the just war, which I accept must be very carefully defined. Uh, And it is that principle that controls our thinking in this area. Therefore, it seems to me that the two world wars and a number of other conflicts ever since fit this pattern. I will accept, if you push me today, that there are some wars that do not sit comfortably against this standard. And uh, we may differ from one another on which wars appear to fit the pattern and which do not. In my judgment, the current impasse that the United States and Britain find itself in in Iraq is not an example of the just war, but that is a personal view. And uh, you may want to discuss that with me later. So it is my conclusion, generally speaking, that a soldier fighting for monarch and country is bound to take life in the defense of liberty and is therefore not guilty of murder. But I began my comments on this area by saying it is a vexed question. And I tell you it is, it is a pastoral issue. Last year I buried a World War II veteran who was racked with guilt ever since the end of the war. He was a Bren gunner in his regiment. For those who are very young here, a Bren gun is a type of machine gun used in the Second World War. He was a Bren gunner in his regiment, and he thought, was convinced, that he had murdered men in the war. He could never be at peace and was constantly asking this question. Can God ever forgive me? It was a real question. I assured him that God could forgive and that I did not feel that he had been guilty of murder in any case. He could never be at peace about the matter. Today, he is with Christ. 
at peace. And has gained heaven's perspective on this vexed issue. But you will appreciate that it is not something that we can make glib judgments about when we face people in the pastoral context. It certainly is where, uh, as we say, the rubber hits the road. But let me bring you back to the case of Cain. See how seriously God took this act of wanton violence. From verse 11, there is a curse pronounced on Cain. It mirrors the curse on the ground. Just as the ground, if you like, had been removed from the context of God's favor and approval, so too with Cain. Adam and Eve, his parents, expelled from the garden. Cain, it seems, is driven further than that. Uh, Walton, in his very good commentary in Genesis, uses the analogy of the tabernacle. He says, Adam and Eve were banned from the antechamber, while Cain is driven outside the camp. What does it mean in practical terms? In practical terms, Cain is driven to an area where it seems there is no hope of agriculture. He is to survive from this point forwards by hunting and gathering. He would become what God states in verse 12 and what he himself repeats in verse 14, a restless wanderer on the earth. Now, some of the stuff here I I don't know the answer to. For example, who is it? that Cain is afraid of. He says, whoever finds me will kill me. He's afraid of somebody. Is this a reference to the rapidly expanding family of people on earth? We don't know. But one thing is sure, both in terms of his relationship with God and his own peace of mind and heart, the man who murdered his brother does not get off lightly. Life is sacred. That's a lesson from Genesis 4 that we need to get firmly lodged in our minds this morning. So, worship is serious, life is sacred, and then thirdly and briefly, God is gracious. Uh, And this theme of grace, I'd like us to appreciate this today. This theme of grace, it pervades the whole of Scripture from Genesis right through to Revelation. It is a thread from the beginning to the end. What is the definition of grace? It is undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. If anybody did not deserve the way he was treated, it was surely Cain. Now, I know that the curse pronounced on him indicated a punishment that he himself felt was more than he could bear. But notice what the Lord does in verse 15. He rules that anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he put a mark on Cain. I don't know what the mark was. We're not told. But it was simply a mark of grace, so that no one who found him would kill him. The mark, someone has said, is like a parallel to the garments that God gave to his parents. Remember how, when they discovered that they were naked, the the Lord provided garments for them. It was an act of grace. And so here is the God of grace, who treated Adam and Eve with grace, treating his son in the same way. The life of the murderer, in other words, is not to be taken in the same ruthless way after the pattern of his own crime. And he went out from the Lord's presence, the text says, and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, something that fascinates me, and we didn't read this part of the chapter, but if you just scan down a little bit further... In chapter 4, you discover that Cain's restlessness did not mean that his life was valueless. Let me say that again. His restlessness did not mean that his life was valueless. No, he was active. 
He was creative. He built a city, verse 17. He fathered a family, verse 18. His descendants would, well, they, they would occupy a variety of, of occupations. Some would be farmers, verse 20. Others would possess musical skill, verse 21. And others would forge instruments of bronze and iron, verse 22. So even in the land of restlessness, there is culture and art. John Calvin says, This race that had most deeply fallen from integrity excelled in rare endowments. Isn't that true? True of them. True of mankind ever since. And why is that the case? Because God is gracious. God is gracious. And so as you and I think about ourselves and about our our fellow Christians here in the congregation and about our neighbours whom we live beside and about others that we rub shoulders with in our place of work and in the community generally, and we see the gifts that God has given to these people, we say God is gracious. It's an example of what theologians call the common grace of God. In other words, that God cares for all he has made including those who have rejected his rule. And uh, I take great comfort in that today. That this is a God not just of judgment. A God who does not take this human race and simply wipe it out of existence. Now he does later when we come to the story of Noah, and we'll not be doing that together. He does judge the world by water and that devastating flood but not to the point of extinction. Grace is there also in the story of Noah. Here is a God of grace who treats us today with the same grace. I wouldn't want anybody to leave the building today with the mistaken impression that Cain was a really bad person and that it's good we're different. We know better than Cain. We'd never have done anything Like Cain. Anybody here today think like that? Well, I suppose, yes, if you really push me, I'd have to say Cain was a bad person. But then you and I are just like him. The seeds of every sin, Benjamin Warfield says, the seeds of every sin lie in the heart of mankind. And just because you and I have not outwardly committed every sin that we can possibly think of, does not mean that we're not capable of them. Jesus said in the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount, that there are people, and I paraphrase, who murder others with their words, even if they do not stab them with knives. Nobody in this building today has not done that. Murdered people with their words. Nobody. You may have done it yesterday, in fact. Maybe last week. Certainly, at some point in your life, you did that. What does that say about us? It says, all of us, without exception are the brothers and sisters of Cain. All of us. But let me direct you back to this heading, number three. God is gracious. Just as Cain knew grace, so grace has been made known to us. In fact, in fuller and richer ways, not least in the forgiveness and acceptance that we find in our Lord Jesus Christ. This Jesus Christ took our sins on the cross so that our alienation could be changed into friendship, so that our broken relationship could be mended again, so that through faith in him, the children of royalty 
crippled by the fall, might take their place again at the table of the king. In Jesus Christ and a relationship with him, restless wanderers can hear a welcome home and learn how to love their brothers again. And I just wonder today, is is it possible that there might be somebody like that in church this morning, a restless wanderer, running away from God for a long, long time? Can I ask you, will you come home today? Will you cease wandering and return to the God who made you? And the God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you. Will you cease your wandering? Come home at last to find grace and love and acceptance from a heavenly father who longs to receive you. These are the ethics of the early chapters of Genesis. Not all of them by any means. We've simply plucked out a few main themes. And uh, my prayer as we've thought about this today, how worship is serious and life is sacred and God is gracious, that these themes and the others that we've looked at on previous Sunday mornings may have provoked us to think. Because we've got to start thinking about real issues in the world and find the principles for addressing those issues in God's word. So that these studies may have provoked us to think and maybe to explore the themes further. But I I tell you my greatest desire, my greatest desire is this, that for myself and everybody here, that these principles may transform us, change us, metamorphose us increasingly into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Father, we pray that you will forgive us because we are the brothers and sisters of Cain. Forgive us for those times when we have been guilty of sinning against our brother. Forgive us for those times when we've deliberately broken your law. O God, grant that we might see the seriousness of that, the seriousness of worshipping you in spirit and in truth, to understand the sacredness of all life, to work that out in ways that are pleasing to you in our ethical decision making and then to worship you particularly because you are the God of grace. Help us, we pray, to bask in the sunshine of your love today, to know that your grace covers us, that grace that we see poured out upon us at the cross. And as we come shortly now to the Lord's Supper, we pray that we will celebrate what happened there in reality and in truth. For Jesus' sake. Amen.